Welcome to the Highly Sensitive Person Podcast, a podcast for people who experience the world intensely. Join me on a journey of acceptance of our highly sensitive person traits. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly. Today, I am happy to have a special guest here, Dr. Amy Banks. And the reason I wanted to bring her on the show is because I read an article that she was interviewed for recently on vice.com, where she talked about loneliness. The title of the article was, An Expert Explains Why You Feel So Lonely All the Time. Yeah, and that title really grabbed me because it's something I see come up all the time among introverts and introverted HSPs, that we love our alone time, we love solitude and peace and quiet, and we sometimes think we can go through life alone and not needing other people because making and having friends and even dealing with family can be stressful and tiring, so we think, maybe I don't really need that many people. But then we realize that being alone is pretty awful too, and we actually do need people. So this article really spoke to me, and I think this topic may be of interest to some of you as well. So I was very pleased when Dr. Amy Banks agreed to be on the show to share her expertise. So before we jump in, I'd like to tell you a little more about her. Amy Banks, MD, was an instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and she's now the director of advanced training at Jean Baker Miller Training Institute at the Wellesley Centers for Women. Her newest book is called Wired to Connect. Dr. Banks has devoted her career to studying the neurobiology of relationships and how our social interactions shape our brains. She treats patients who suffer from chronic disconnection, which is the result of years of focusing on individual success and neglecting relationships. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking you, why is it bad to have that state of mind to think that you can do everything alone, just stand on your own two feet, be self-sufficient? Why is that not an ideal way to be? Well, the primary reason it's not an ideal way to be is that it actually goes against your physiology. Literally, we are born sort of each one of us human beings are born more as pack animals than as, you know, like I, I always like to say, we're not turtles or, you know, amphibians or something like that, where we're born with everything we need to just kind of get spit out of the mom and then keep going, right? That kind of an animal has all these instincts to survive and all of that. And what we have as human beings is instincts to connect, right? Literally. And, and what we need is to have safe, close relationships in order for those reflexes to connect, to develop into really these robust pathways for connection that actually allow us to feel, you know, very calm, very accepted, resonant when we're in the company of people that we're safe with, right? And that's how our physiology, that's literally how our bodies and our brains are built. So it stresses us out is the very short answer. So where did this come from that things have changed over time and now our society has changed to value self-sufficiency and doing things alone so much versus more of a community-based type of society? You know what? It's, a, it's, a, it's really a fascinating question. And there have been a lot of people that have written about it. Uh, Robert Partnum under, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Um, I can tell you that 
you know, it's something that I've given a lot of thought to. And I think there's something about American culture, right? Um, that pioneering spirit that was so celebrated, the, you know, the hyper independent thinker who's going to create on their own, you know, the next new invention, the next new uh, technology. Um, and that it's gotten, it sort of got uh, ingrained, if you will, or entwined with capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, all of a sudden, this kind of notion of success got tied into, you know, being the best, the brightest, the fastest, the most creative, the most, all of that. And it, and focused in a very individual way. You know, I, I often say, and partly probably because I, uh, I'm now living in Lexington, Massachusetts, where, you know, where it all began, that we literally separated from Britain in order to have our own system. And, and somebody took that to the nth degree. Huh. That makes so much sense when you explain that it's about capitalism. I mean, yeah. look at it versus communism, which was such a huge thing in the U.S. for so long that we were so anti and fighting communism. That's right. Literally, yes. communism has the word community in it. That's right. It has so, right. And and really, not that I'm a communist, but when when the concept is done right, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is more about community, right? It's sort of it's erasing, if you will, the individual differences. And and what we do is we maximize those. And we maximize them, unfortunately, at the detriment to each and any, every one of us. And as I work from home uh, for myself, and I'm always reading these things about solopreneur, like the entrepreneur, but it's a solopreneur. And that's like this hot buzzword right now. Everyone wants to be a solopreneur. And it's all about yeah. this pride of doing everything on your own and not needing other people or like a boss to tell you what to do. Exactly. It's like it gives you an extra a little bit of shine or gleam, right? If you do it on your own, it really, it's a value system that is built into everything in this culture. It's really scary. It's kind of shocking how we try to do things so alone nowadays. And of course, with all of our computers and internet and everything, it's so easy to do everything online and not have to connect. I mean, the old days, everybody went into an office all the time or whatever your job was, you went somewhere physically. And now it's more and more you can do stuff from home. Yeah. This trend of people wanting to be alone and self-sufficient. Do you think it's sometimes due to wanting to avoid the pain and hurt of relationship or the feeling of rejection? Absolutely. I think it's a huge part is that. And you see, when you start with a culture, right, that uh, promote separation and individuation, what, what it then doesn't value is the very basic relational skills that we all needed to learn and needed to build on and, you know, have inside of us to go out into those relationships so that we can do the hard things, right? To be angry and be okay with it. To have somebody angry with us and have our, you know, what I say, the smart vagus nerve help settle us down and know that anger belongs in a healthy relationship, right? That conflict is a part of a healthy relationship. And so if we don't, the only way you learn that is when that's being modeled for you and when you're having an opportunity to practice it. And if that doesn't happen because you know, where what we're being taught is these other people don't have to impact you. 
You don't have to consider what they say about you, right? Their opinions don't matter. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that helps us become these compartmentalized, boundaried, hyper-boundaried individuals. We're missing relational skills that are necessary to try to avoid the pain. Wow. Right? I was just letting that soak in. Yeah. Do you think that this trend in the US, and I know in some Western European countries and Japan, for example, there's this trend of more and more people deciding not to have children. Do you think yeah. that could be related to this as well as this wanting to be alone and not kind of be hampered by this stressful, difficult thing about having children? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it certainly could be, couldn't it? I mean, the more self-oriented you are, <laughs> let me tell you, the less you're going to want to have kids, right? <laughs> because because there's nothing almost more selfless mm -hmm. than having children. So though I've not looked at any studies or literature on that, I certainly can see that as being kind of almost a, you know, almost an inevitable outgrowth of that. You don't want to be hindered. You want to be, you know, be able to build yourself up. And your children really do that in a, a different way, right? You you have to be able to va value those moments of intimacy in family, in, you know, even with your spouse or partner, if you choose to have a child with a partner, right? And then those little moments that you have with a child. And if you don't believe in relationship or people building, right, relationship people building, then those don't become very rewarding. Like you would have to value the intimacy and the relationship yes. with your child more than you value your quest to to pursue your career or be a exactly pursuing selfful things. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, we become very dichotomous, right? We're either going to be somebody who values relationship or values ourselves. Mm -hmm. And and we've built bigger and bigger selves. In another interview that you did, I heard you mention that people with low levels of social support have a higher premature death rate, I think 340% higher, which is horrifying, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, you know, that was one of my messages early on when I started doing this work and really trying to talk with people about it, share it, teach it, and all of that is really getting it that we're not just talking about uh, sort of an emotional, psychological downer here. We're talking about the fact that because our bodies are hardwired to connect, literally our entire physiology, meaning our health, our health and well-being is connected to being connected, right? So our immune system works better when we're in healthy connection. And so there's a vast, almost this endless body of literature on the health impact of loneliness, disconnection, and it's enormous. Uh, there's a there's a guy, Dean Ornish, who used to be, or I think he still is, actually one of the major writers on cardiac health. Mm. Uh, he, he promoted the Ornish diet. And out of the blue, about 10 years ago, he wrote this book called Love and Survival. And it was all about this. And I, I referenced that book quite a bit in my book, um, because he he goes through painstakingly, study after study after study, that says why love, connection, and relationship are central, more central than anything else we do in this country of ours. Anything else medically is central to our health and well-being. So how is loneliness versus being around others related to things physiologically like stress and dopamine? 
Well, let me let me give you a good example. In my book, I talk about four pathways for connection, and I think one of them is one of the four, which in my uh, program that I do is called the Care Program, and it's kind of an assessment and action tool that you can do to build more. Uh, better relationships and actually stronger pathways for connection. But there's C stands for the sense of uh, calm that you can get in healthy relationship. And what that references is something called the smart vagus nerve, which is part of the human, what's called the autonomic nervous system. It's like our automatic nervous system. And most people are familiar with sort of that fight or flight response which is the stress response or the parasympathetic, sometimes call, is called the freeze response or even the relaxation response. And thinking that that's the way we deal with our environment. But apparently about 50,000 years ago, human beings and actually mammals developed something called the smart vagus that is a nerve literally that travels into all of your muscles of facial expression, those muscles like where your eyebrows are, your inner ear, there's little muscles in your inner ear, your throat, uh, both for speaking and swallowing. And when you perceive yourself to go out into the world into a healthy relationship, a supportive community, what happens is, think about it, you usually smile, your eyebrows go up, you listen more attentively, and all of that stimulates the smart vagus which feeds back to your stress response system and literally causes you to feel calmer, Hmm. right? So biologically, we feel calmer. And when we feel calmer, it's the whole, you know, de-stressing. We know that high stress literally impairs the immune system over time. De-stressing strengthens the immune system. Um, And there have been fascinating studies, literally, of, for instance, Somebody has gotten a cut, they do a cut like with, I don't know, something on somebody's hand and it heals more quickly in the context of healthy relationship than out of it, wow. right? Our heal, our whole healing system is dependent on relationship. Wow. And that's really interesting. I wonder, I wonder if that's, because um, I'm always thinking of things in terms of highly sensitive people. I wonder mm-hmm. if there's some relation to that in the fact that we are so sensitive to things, if maybe that's even more amplified in a highly sensitive yeah. person. Do you think yep. this could be possible? I, I do. I do. And I have to say I work. I'm I'm not a highly sensitive person mm-hmm. myself, but I work with a number of mm-hmm. them, right? Uh, and I have a son, actually, that is one of these folks. And the se- the system is so fine-tuned, right, that what is coming at the person is sort of in high relief, good, bad, or otherwise, what I what I think about with a highly sensitive person, the sensitive part, I think sensitive, I think senses, which means the things that are happening in the world in relationships, but also sometimes it can be around sounds or no, you know, noise or whatever. It really comes into your system in a higher volume, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, I absolutely uh, live that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So. It, almost like your receptors have upregulated and they're just catching more and more and more of what's going f- through the world. Whereas people that don't have that capacity, actually, you know, there's a whole bunch that just gets screened out and slips by. Right. It's great to hear from someone like you, who is a, a neuroscientist, to speak about high sensitivity, you know, as this is a real thing. A lot of times people act like it's not this real thing. And we're always trying to defend. Right, so right, it's right. It's nice to hear you uh, say that as well. That's all. That's a big reason why I wanted to speak to you so much is that 
a lot of people listen to the show and they get a lot of information about they, they're learning yeah. about themselves about being That's highly right. sensitive and i think this is such a huge thing even for me personally learning about this about relationships it's something i've been actively trying to improve is um being out and being a little bit more social than i have been yeah. Mm -hmm. I go to meetup.com is kind of a great place to look for groups of people. There's every different interest you could imagine. That's a great way. If you really don't know where to start with meeting new people, it's a safe, yeah. comfortable way to do it. Yeah. And I think it's so important to do, right? I love this message that just because the world <laughs> and the world I'm using as a metaphor is so loud, it doesn't mean that you have to just hide from it, right? Right. What it, what it means is some more discernment uh, terms that I found helpful very on as it's very on around highly sensitive people is sort of the idea of a sensory diet, mm. right? Is it sort of, okay, I know that if I have to for work, you know, start my day on the subway with a lot of noise, with tons of people, you know, picking up on people's energy, all of this kind of chaos, what do I need to do? How do I... How do I modulate the rest of my day, right? right? And what does that what does that mean? If I want to go out and try to connect with somebody at night, what kind of person do I need to have? You know, do I need a, you know, a, a quiet glass of wine with somebody where we'll just chit chat? Do I, you know, right. really about kind of respecting and really knowing yourself and what you need, and that 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 being highly sensitive does not mean uh, non relational. Right. Yes, absolutely. Especially yeah. for introverted HSPs. I've absolutely I have um a friend who is a an introvert. I'm actually not sure if he's HSP, but he's an introvert. And we've talked about this before, how sometimes we get in these modes where we feel like we don't need anyone and but then something mm -hmm. will always come up that reminds you that wow, I really do need people. And right. I've discovered right. myself when I hang out with some friends that I really enjoy and have like a really good chat, I feel incredible afterwards. It's almost like I'm on a high. <laughs> yep. Just from yep. having like a nice pleasant conversation with somebody that I enjoy. Right. And that's you know what that's the biggest gift of relationship, right? I would say is I mean you mentioned earlier that whole dopamine reward system and I think that's what you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Is that our dopamine reward system that gives us that uh zest or energy. Actually one of my colleagues Gene Baker Miller sort of really put together healthy relationship and that concept of zest or the energy that you get mm -hmm. in a good conversation or a good uh, kind of connection. And, you know, that that dopamine reward system in the beginning is connected to healthy relationships. So the hug and the holding and the cooing and the, you know, the feeding and all of that gives you that hit of dopamine so that you have energy and motivation and excitement to go out into the world, right? And do other good, healthy things. And so that's sort of one of those standard uh, identifiers for me of I've just been in a healthy connection, right? Yeah. I had that sense of zest. Mm -hmm. And you want to keep that alive. And when people are telling you to separate and that you don't need people, we we begin to really disconnect the dopamine reward system from healthy relationship, mm. you know, and because people need dopamine, right? We literally need it as a form of motivation and energy. Mm. We go other places to get dopamine mm. and in, in nine times out of 10, they're not good places, <sighs> right? They're the bar, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the pastries, oh, the yeah. mall, the whatever. <laughs> yeah. Pastries, you found mine right there. 
you know, I found mine. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. And, and that leads to something I also wanted to ask about is since we get dopamine from connecting and you just mentioned that it's almost like we start to lose the ability to have dopamine from connecting. So we look for it in other places. Could that be related to why people online, there's sort of this epidemic of online bullying and tearing other people apart online. Is that related to dopamine almost in like a reverse evil way, like a sinister way? <laughs> well, you know, one of the ways that you can get a dopamine hit is by establishing power over other people. Mm. Okay. So, and that's unfortunate, yeah. right? So you really can get a little bit of that same high by trying to gain power. And I think that's one of the ways that power over uh, systems kind of reproduce, right? Is you've got somebody at the top who's bullying or, you know, really invested in having the power and the people underneath them can see, okay, this is, this is how this works. The only way that I'm ever going to get out of this is to get power myself, right? And they come up through that system until they get the power or, or they just look around them and they think of who they can then have power over. And I think you do get that in a, in a way with the cyberbullying, right? You know, people who are felt left out and don't know how to connect can feel momentarily better by getting power over other people. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense that you would get a dopamine you know, burst yeah. from the feeling of burst, power right. as well. Mm -hmm. So what about having relationships with animals? Can that replace people or can it sort sort of replace people? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not replace <laughs> yes. the rest the right word yes. to use. Yes, but it can. Um so, you know, probably not if you want somebody to help you button your shirt, right? <laughs> I mean but but mm -hmm. for you know, a lot of the kind of love and affection, mm -hmm. animals actually can be far less complicated than people. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can hear that from a lot of people who really say, okay, my best friend is my dog yeah. or my best friend is, you know, my cat or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but from mammals particularly, okay, you can get a very similar physiology, physiological uh, uh, improvement. Literally, you can get a, a lot of the same advantages that you do with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, when I spend time with my dog and anyone who has a pet, you probably totally know yeah. that feeling of just like this incredible feeling of joy sometimes when, you know, something yeah. happens or she does something funny that makes me laugh. So so that's good to yeah. know. And the and literally the physical contact, right? Yeah. The physical. Contact. Oh, yeah. Just petting yeah. her because she's my dog yeah. is really soft for She's kind of like a poodly dog. Yeah. yeah okay. All the time. Yeah. Just Great just touching her. And, you know, I never, I don't think about it much, but even I just sit there and just pet her without even thinking that's about right. it. That's right. And that touch will do that. It stimulates dopamine and oxytocin. There, And there's actually um, a, a study, a guy that has written a book, I can't remember it, and I'm sorry about that, but has written a book about who, who actually has been scanning dogs' brains <laughs> and finds that they too, humans, they're human, kind of it stimulates their dopamine re reward system. So it's it's reciprocated. Dogs are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They are. <laughs> right now I'm going to take a little break to share a message from this episode's sponsor. Now that it is fall and the weather's starting to cool down, I'm really excited about increasing my tea consumption <laughs> I love drinking tea. There's something comforting about the ritual of it. 
So I want to tell you about a great monthly tea subscription that I discovered recently from a company called Plum Deluxe. Plum Deluxe is from Portland, Oregon, and they have a tea of the month club that is only $10 per month. I love the idea of getting a new tea in the mail every few weeks. With the subscription, you get enough hand-blended tea for about 20 cups. You also receive a free sample of one additional tea and access to the great private Facebook group of fellow tea lovers, which might actually be my favorite part. This is the perfect time to order and get in on next month's shipment. Not to mention that this would make an excellent gift. Don't forget Christmas is right around the corner. You can cancel your membership anytime. And apologies to international listeners, but this is only available in the U.S. and Canada. Just go to highlysensitiveperson.net slash tea to find out more about this special offer from Plum Deluxe. Now, back to the episode. So, because our society like this, especially in the United States, is valuing the solo, do-it-alone mindset, is there any way we can fix society so it stops stressing that type of living? Yeah. You know, my first answer is yes, absolutely. Okay. Because what we do know is that our brains are incredibly plastic. We can change the way we behave, the way we think. And when we do that, it actually does uh, change then the structures that we set up to support ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And each other. Um, but we have to be very aware that what we are up against actually is this hypercapitalism, mm -hmm. right? And and, you know, when you start sort of saying, hmm, <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that you can't be capitalist and have relationships, because I think you actually can, but you have to begin to start thinking about the, the, the way that our society, both economically and our social institutions are s set up. We have to go from a model of power over, right? Mm -hmm. And go from a model of, you know, the 1% having 99% of the wealth, mm -hmm. you have to go for a model of cooperation of, you know, of, and there is plenty of research that says businesses and all of that really do work as well, if not better under a cooperative model. It doesn't mean that we don't have leaders. It doesn't mean, you know, that, that there aren't even some hierarchies, but the concept is do the hierarchies are the hierarchies about keeping power in power's place or is it about creating systems that work efficiently and really maximize all human functioning, right? Um, so that's sort of on this global scale. Um, individually, I think each and every person can do sort of a relational inventory. Who are the people in my life? What is the quality of my relationships? And how can I begin to deconstruct what society is telling me over and over, mm. right? And you're going to see it in everything from advertisements to, I mean, everywhere is this message of separation and individuation and the strong individual. Yeah. And ev right? even as you were saying, um, to switch from the idea of power to more of cooperation, almost like this little alarm went off in my head because I've been so ingrained as an American to think, oh, no, 
that's bad. It almost sounds like you're talking about communism, you know? Right. That's right. Yeah. But but that's exactly what we have to start noticing, right? Because I'm not saying communism. I don't think the communist right. system, we haven't seen anyone that's worked well. Right. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying communism. I'm saying uh, systems that, you know, where a group of people get together and have, they have not the same role, but equal value and equal respect, right? right. Um, and they're moving towards creating X, Y, or Z, whatever the, whatever the product is. It's not that, you know, and that really puts relationship, the value of relationship front and center. And when you do that, policies have to switch, right? I mean, it gets into things like the United States not giving parents, you know, mandated parental oh, leave. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a key one, because though we know in brain development, those first months in a year of life are absolutely critical to keeping these to, you know, developing these pathways for connection. Right. right. So there are whole whole sets of social policies that we don't have in place. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we're so independence, independent uh, driven. Right. And it's seen as a weakness to won't yep. feel like you have to depend on someone else. Like you should be able to do everything That's alone right. and be strong and tough. Um, yep. As you were talking, I thought back to some jobs I've had. And one job in particular I had that I always think of very fondly as being the best job I ever had. The main part was because my boss, he sort of um, espoused some of the things that you just mentioned. Like it was never mm. about him having power over us. He treated us all very equally as if all of our thoughts and our input was super valuable and it was yep. a great team environment and I've never worked anywhere yeah, else exactly. like that where we all support each other there was no feeling of competition between me and my coworkers yeah. and uh yeah. it really did feel great it does feel great because that's where the, those environments are where you know we're a real like a a, a, a different kind of a leader a yeah. relational leader right mm -hmm. actually harnesses the positive power of relationship. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, I mean, this is the, this is the crazy thing, right? When you actually can do that, the productivity is so much better, yeah. right? Yeah. We somehow think that if we don't pit everybody against each other, that everybody's going to be lazy, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, that the, this idea that we want to work for our coworkers doesn't occur to us, right? Yeah. Yeah, You know, yeah. all we're going to want to do is work for ourselves and our own benefit. You're totally right, because that's a, all me and my coworkers worked really hard because yeah. we wanted to make our boss proud that because he trusted us and help out our team. And it really was that's such right. a wonderful feeling of teamwork. That's right. That's right. And if you think about it, if for, for people out there who uh, are interested or follow sports, right, the teams that always succeed are the ones where they come together as a team. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Where there aren't all these individual stars and it's sort of, OK, some people are better than others at X, Y or Z. Right. But when you come together as a team, you know, the, the sum of the parts is bigger than the whole kind of thing. Right. right? I mean, it's, it really it really rises everybody's game. Yeah. And, you know, that's what relationship can do. Because you're, you, because you're calmer, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you feel included, you feel accepted, you're not worrying about being left out or excluded or what have you. And we don't, I think, as a, as a society, we, we put almost zero uh, kind of energy into leveraging that. Yeah. So for people who are listening right now and thinking, 
that this is really hitting home for them. Like, wow, I, I yeah. do, I have been neglecting relationships in my life. Maybe this is part of why I've been getting sick or just feeling yes. sad in my life more in general. How, what are some tips you could give on how to maybe make more friends or build your relationships? What are some things you tell the people that you work with who have chronic disconnection? So, you know, one of the things that I have people do, and this is going to, you know, after I've just done this whole teamwork thing, uh, I'm going to put out, this is very self-promoting, but I would have pe people go to my website, which is amybanksmd.com. And on that, I have something I call a relational assessment tool. Okay. And what the person can do, and it's, it's a good way to get started in figuring out where am I in this whole relational world, mm -hmm. right? And what I have people do is the, the assessment has um, 20 questions and you pick out the number of people that you uh, or, or uh, the people that you spend the most time with, right? So it's not the people that are closest to you per se, but the ones that you are spend the most time with thinking that to the nervous system, more time means more stimulation, means building certain pathways, right? And then they with each person, they go down and they answer this set of questions anywhere. The, and the questions range from, I can be in conflict with this person, to I trust this person, to I laugh with this person. And a couple of things will happen. Number one, they're going to get a different essence of how their relationships are impacting their health and well-being, mm -hmm. right? Um, going through the questions, they're also going to be educating themselves about what are the qualities, what should I be looking for in my relationships? What's a healthy relationship, right? And this is work that has been done uh, in what's called relational cultural theory, the Gene Baker Miller Training Institute that I've worked on with my colleagues for many, many years, many decades actually at this point. Um, and they can take that and literally get a snapshot of, okay, this relationship is moderately safe. This one is, is safe. This one is not so safe. And to begin to think about taking relational risks within the relationships that can support them, right? My worry is always that we come from this culture where relationship skills aren't taught, right? Mm -hmm. And then we say, oh, go and try to be angry here or go and try to tell, you know, one secret you've never told before there. And then the person, you know, they'll come back to me and they'll be like, oh my God, that was a disaster. And nine times out of 10, it's like, there's not a pairing of what I'm going to say to whom, mm -hmm. you know, there's, it's sort of indiscriminate. Right. And so what I, what I really have tried to think about for people is how to, how to break down this whole relational mishigas, if you will, into something where you, uh, can kind of take it in bite-sized pieces, right? Mm -hmm. Learn more about yourself, more about your relationships. And from that assessment, you actually will get what's called care score, but it's about your own neural pathways for connection and how they're functioning. That's excellent. I will have a link to that relational assessment tool in the show notes for this episode. So anyone who's interested can find that. It costs that. nothing. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a wonderful tool. Well, before I wrap up, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I didn't ask? Well, the, you know, the one thing for, for introverts, right, is I'm not sure I made this point strongly enough, but I wanted to, which is, you know, to just be very clear that introverts aren't people that don't need people, oh, right? right? Mm -hmm. the, the way that I think of introversion and extroversion is more, uh, you know, actually, as you're framing it, somewhat in terms of sensitivity, and that an introvert needs connection, mm -hmm. but 
an introvert who has these pathways for connection that are robust and healthy actually can go out, have an interaction, and then it lives within them longer oh, yeah. than it does for other people. Right. Yeah. Definitely. You know, so, so when, you know, for extroverts, it's almost like the half-life is shorter yeah. and they need to get right back out there. But for introverts, they take it in and it stays in there, lives in there longer. And I think that's really a, a, a much different way to think about it than, oh, I don't need that. Right. That is beautiful. I love that. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a little gem that you have, like this little thing that you have with you that you sort of treasure and it just feels good and it's sort of glowing inside of you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And any int- introvert will know, they know the difference between being alone with yourself and your friends, right? But alone mm-hmm. versus lonely. Yes. Which is a very different thing. Yeah, that is. I'm glad that you made that distinction because a lot of people do get confused about the word introvert and they think it just means I don't ever want to be about around anyone ever. Just leave me alone. That's sort of a different thing. <laughs> That's yeah. not really yeah. introversion. Yeah. Dr. Banks, thank you so much for taking the time to share your knowledge today with the, some of us introverted HSPs. I think it could be extremely valuable just the realization that maybe we need to examine our relationships and work on them a little bit more. Maybe they need a little bit more attention than we realize because it can affect our life and our health so much. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you. Be well. You can find Amy online at amybanksmd.com. And she also has a column on psychology today called Wired for Love. And be sure to check out her newest book called Wired to Connect. You can find her on Twitter as Amy Banks MD. I'll have links to all of these things, as well as her relationship assessment tool in the show notes at highlysensitiveperson.net slash episode 7070. While you're at the website, don't forget to sign up to my newsletter where you'll receive updates on new podcast episode, blog posts, and interesting HSP news. I'd also like to give a big shout out to the newest Patreon supporter, Gloria. Thank you so much for your support of the show at patreon.com. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a great day. 